0: It's my privilege to um, share the Word of God with you and hopefully learn together. Let's pray and then we'll get started. Lord, thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. Thank you that we can gather together uh, in freedom to break the bread of your Word. I pray, Lord, that you would um, use it to Grow us up in you, use it to teach us, use it to correct us, use it to train us for your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Um, Philippians is written by Paul, and he has a special place in his heart for the Philippians. Um, it was founded, if you look in Acts chapter 15 and 16, it's founded on his second missionary journey. Um, He met a woman named Lydia, was jailed, and a Philippian jailer named, uh, that we don't really know the name of, I guess, the Philippian jailer and his family came to salvation. He had a rough time when he was there in Philippi. First Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 2 tells us that it was rough going, but he, by the preaching of the gospel, the gospel took root in Philippi, and a church that was known for its Love for Christ and uh, its sacrificial giving uh, was birthed there by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, they had witnessed his persecution and imprisonment. They had responded to the gospel. They were growing in their faith. They contributed sacrificially to his ministry through giving. At times, they were the only ones that were giving in his missionary efforts. They were loyal to Paul's leadership and were also following his example. So they were really um, a model church, if you you will, in many ways. Uh, Paul in Philippians is encouraging the Philippians to follow Christ and become increasingly like him. That is the whole thrust of the book. Joy in Christ, becoming like Christ. And... um, When we read the whole book, which is really a letter, um, we need to be mindful that these are letters, and it's very difficult to just pick a section out of a a letter and let it stand on its own. And I have chosen tonight to um, look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. So I'm going to go ahead and read those again. I thank Brian for reading the context, so I don't have to go back through it. Um, it says, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as, as, as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who is at work at you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we have two statements in verse 12 and one in verse 13. Uh, That sounds like God's working out our salvation, and it sounds like we are working out our salvation. And sometimes uh, these verses are, one of those verses is quoted in the absence of another to prove the point that, you know, we should be busy about our salvation, it's up to us, or to prove the point, or make the point, or drive the point home that somehow God is responsible for our salvation and working it out, and so we can kind of let go and let God. Um, There's two ways of kind of looking at that, Um, easy chair Christianity and treadmill Christianity. If, for instance, it is up to us to work out our own salvation, that's kind of like being on a treadmill. That means we need to get busy. You know, we might think that God has taken us so far, and now the rest is up to us. And there are churches that believe and practice that. That the justification in Christ, in our salvation, what the work of Christ has done on our behalf, is somehow not fully completed. And we need to make up in our efforts the difference so that we can be accepted by God. And then there's another camp that kind of looks more at the uh, God is at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And they will say, well, you know, what we need to do is we need to let go and let God. We need to get out of the way so that God can do his work. And in extreme cases, um, they will take the Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 passage and look at the first half of it. And that says, uh, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And they will say, well, my job is to fade into the background so that Christ can work through me. I need to be completely and totally passive, and the more that I can disappear into the background, the better things are. In in extreme cases, uh, people who take that view, in extreme cases... Um, they will say that there is a point possibly in the life of a believer where the effects of the sin nature are just gone because you have passivated yourself so far that only Christ is working. And um, in a sense, that might, you might consider that sinless perfection, if you will, or um, you know, an extreme case of, of just, I think it's apathy and unwillingness to work unwillingness to bring effort. And so, somehow in this, we need to look at this process of growing in Christ, Christ-likeness, which we call sanctification, and, and look at God's what is God doing and what are we doing. God is at work, and we're supposed to be at work. Somehow those two need to come together and reconcile themselves in our thoughts and in our minds and in our hearts. Um, hopefully our study here tonight will lead some, you know, shed some light on that. And I've learned a lot um, studying this. And I don't know all the answers. Nobody really does. Um, But I think this passage and the way that it's laid out gives us some good indications of what's going on. And I'm looking forward to sharing them. This passage... um, has a certain structure to it, and it's good when we come to a passage and we want to um, study it, we want to look at the logical structure of the passage. We want to know what statements in the passage are dependent on something else, because if statements or words in the passage are dependent on something else to fully understand those statements, we need to know what's playing into them. So, in a, in a skeleton uh, framework of these two verses, um, you have really the statement, just as you have obeyed, or always obeyed, work out your salvation, for it is God who is at work in you. And, of course, we have those modifiers after that, but that's the structure of the verse. And when you peel away some of the other things that are interposed, and it's not doesn't mean they're not important, and the verse um, verse twelve starts with the word so then, which refers back to the immediate context, and we will find in that that you have to climb up a climb up a ways before you get to the end of the therefores and the for this reasons and so forth and so on. Um, in the middle of that passage, or beginning of verse thirteen, you'll see the word for. Um, and so you have this word for, and when you see a for, because he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, it leads us to understand that the, whatever it is to work out your salvation is dependent on the fact that God is working in you and in us. And we also realize um, that the word obeyed, which comes in the beginning of chapter, or or verse 12, because it's preceded by a so-then, it points to a context that's above it. And so whatever that word obeyed is, means, um, it is dependent and and, and is um, dependent on what has been taught beforehand. And so we want to make sure that when we get to the word obeyed, we understand what, what exactly does he mean by obedience. And... Obedience here and the is related to the middle statement, work out your salvation, in the sense of being on the same plane. Um, almost like the idea of possibly even a restatement or a further explanation of what it means to be obedient or to have obeyed. And I'm hoping we can dig some of that out of there. So what we're going to do um, is we're going to start with what I consider to be probably the, easy, the easiest of the, of the phrases to deal with. And it's the one that says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The reason I chose that first is because the working out our salvation, which is what we're really, we're really interested in understanding, what is our role, is dependent on what God is doing. So the word work here, in work out, for it is God who is at work in you, is the word that we get uh, for, for energy, energeo. The idea there is that he, it causes it to be, this word energy or work causes something to be or to come about or to accomplish something. Um, And we see in the New American Standard that that word work shows up twice. It says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That second occurrence of work is the same word, but some translations of the Bible, like the New King James, um, translate that as do. And maybe the word do or accomplish might be better in the context, because God is at work, He's, he's, he's at work to bring about something in our wills, and also to accomplish that which he is bringing about in our wills. So he provides the working and the willing for the doing by his strength, by the power of God that lives within us through the Holy Spirit. And even though God is at work in our wills, which uh, the idea of will here is the idea of the thing that you want or the thing that you desire. Some people have, have said Your will is your wanter. So God is working out his will in you, in your will, or in your desires, so that you get to a place where you desire what he wants, and then guess what? When you desire what he wants, you're going to do it by Christ's strength and power within you. That's the idea here. But even though God is at work, we're not somehow puppets on a string. We're responsible to respond to his activity. The working that goes on in verse 13 with God is an active working. In other words, God is actively doing this. And the action is independent of some other uh, process. It's independent of our actions. God is doing it. In the same way that we understand the sovereignty of God in salvation, that he is the one who brings about the change in us, which allows us to then respond with the faith that he gives us. He didn't force us to come to salvation. He just merely changed our hearts, changed our wills, made us desire forgiveness. And we, of our own, I'll use this term lightly, free will, uncoerced will, how about that, we came to him, but it was he, it was him, it was he who did the work. He was doing the working. He was doing the changing. We are doing the responding. Ephesians 2 says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in him. If he has prepared works for us to do before we were even saved, that we would do them, guess what? He's also at the process of bringing them to pass in our lives. So that should be great encouragement to us that God is at work in you. He's at work in me. Not only to to change our desires, not only to carry us along, but to actually accomplish. And that's why the Apostle Paul numerous times says in his letters, it wasn't I who worked, it was Christ. I've labored hard. I have pursued Christ. I have done things. But it wasn't me who did all these things. It was Christ who was working in me. What does God accomplish me? He's accomplishing his will. And what is his will? His will is the same for every believer. It's to be conformed to the image of Christ. A lot of times we think of God's will. Where should I go? What what, what should I do for school? Who should I marry? We think of the the will of God in very worldly or horizontal terms many times. But his will for us, the heart of God in his heart is to transform us, to perfect us, if you will, until the day he comes. Romans 8, 29 is a good reference there. Why does God work? He works for his glory and for his good pleasure. God is at work in you, both to will and to do, for his good pleasure. It pleases God. It should should make us uh, joyful to know that it pleases God to conform saved sinners into the image of Christ, and he does, he takes great joy in that. He takes great joy in that. It fulfills his promise to believers as well. When he conforms us to the image of Christ, it, it fulfills his promise that whom he began a good work that he justified, he will perfect, sanctify, and eventually glorify. Philippians 1.6. God's work is also continuous. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. His work is constant, even when we are not consistent. His work is constant. He's constantly at work in your life and in mine. And in his love for us, he promises to discipline us when we get off track. Isn't that wonderful? A loving God who will not let you or me stray but will accomplish His purposes in us. Isn't that wonderful? God calls us all. The Christian obedience. We're going to look, turn to verse 12. And uh, John Piper is interesting. You know, John is very animated, and I, I love him. He said, obedience for the Christian is not a curse word. It's not a bad word. Neither is submission. Neither is bringing your will into subjection to the will of God. None of these things are bad things. They are good things. Obedience, when we think about it on the surface, the first thing that pretty much everybody, including myself, would say when I say what is obedience, you and I would almost universally and categorically say it's following the rules. And that's not what obedience is here in the scriptures. Yes, do we follow the commands of God? Yes, but we do it for a different reason, not to follow the rules, because we're serving a living living and risen Savior, who's at work in us. Um, so, let's move up here. Paul uses the statement there. He says, So then, my beloved, just as you as have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, that statement, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, He is using that to convey the idea that there should be continual effort on the part of the Philippians to obey. He was with them. He was not with them. He's now in prison writing to them. He doesn't know when or if or how long it's going to be until he sees them again. So he's saying, just because I'm not there and you don't have your mentor, which maybe made it easier for you to obey because it maybe gave you more confidence, you need to be all the more diligent to obey, whatever that means, to obey in my absence. And by the way, God is at work in you, and God is always there working. So there's always someone here um, in in your presence, Christ living within you by his Spirit. And he says they always obeyed. He's not really referring here to the idea that the Philippians' actions were perfect. Uh, Rather, he is referring to the fact that they've been learning and growing in their obedience to the gospel with a Christ-like attitude. And we see that in the context that we're going to come to. They received the gospel and responded in belief. They were exhibiting outward signs of obedience, generosity, love, persevering in the midst of conflict. What we will see is that Christian obedience is the proper response to God's revelation and activity. Let's consider the context. Um, when you look at verse 12, it starts with the words, so then, and that points up to the preceding verses, which really are verses 9 through 11, Christ's exaltation. But then that's, it starts, that section starts with the words, for this reason, and so that bumps you back up in the passage to chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, therefore, and that makes you look back, and until you get that all worked out, you end up at verse 27 of chapter 1, where this is where the thoughts really begin that should color and lead us to understand what Paul is meaning by the word obey. When he says, you've always obeyed. And I would love to go through those really closely, but we just don't have time, of course. Um, Verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 27 through 30 um, he basically gives them the charge, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. He makes statements like, stand firm, be united, don't be afraid of resistance or surprised at suffering because I suffered and you're going to experience suffering because it has been granted by God for you not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. And Those are, those are important words when we get to the concept of obedience. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, basically states that true gospel transformation bears fruit. So if you have been saved, there will be evidence in your working, in the working out, if you will, or the living out of this salvation. He talks very much about unity, the same mind, unity of love, unity of spirit or intention, unity of purpose. He calls, he says, if these things are part of you, He calls them to be others centered, having a humility regarding regarding others and their interests uh, and their own interests as more important than your own. Looking for a servant attitude, the outworking of um, servant leadership and servant obedience, if you will, where because we are humble, we are looking at other people and we're naturally wired, if you will to consider our interests first because we seem to know them the best and we seem to think they're the most important. By nature, we want to we be our own law and we want to be self-sufficient. And we expect everybody in our lives to, to you know, feed into those two ideals in our life. Um, so the outworking of the gospel produces an others-centeredness. Chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, um, gives us Christ's example of obedience um, Paul says, have this attitude which, in yourselves, which was also in Christ, um, in Christ. And this is a beautiful passage of Scripture that has so many theological and ethical details. We're going to focus primarily on um, that attitude. Paul is saying, have this attitude in yourselves that you saw in Christ, the man, Jesus Christ. This idea of an attitude is a disposition. In other words, he, Paul is uh, asking his readers, asking the Philippians, to think about things the way the perfect man Christ Jesus did. Think about these things. What are these things? Well, that's what follows. Think about the incarnation, Christ's voluntary, humble, obedient submission to the will of God, suffering to the point of death, even death on the cross. This is the example that Paul comes to when he says, when you think of humility, servanthood, think of Christ. You can never dive into it deep enough. You can never know it well enough. Suffering here really is at least twofold. There's the suffering due to the crucifixion, the physical pain, the wrath of God born on our behalf as he satisfied God's wrath. For sinners, for you, for me, as he was forsaken by his father. There's suffering there. There's intense suffering. But I think there's another layer of suffering that's, uh, that's pursuant to our study. There's the suffering due to bringing his human will into submission to the Father's will. That really, when we start thinking about what is obedience, Obedience is bringing our wills into conformity and submission to the will of another. And so what do we see Christ doing? We should look at him in the garden. He says, Father, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done in Luke 22, 42. How do we understand that? I think we should understand that he was looking at the cup, the wrath, and he's saying, if there's any other way, I, I, I... you know, Father, I want to uh, take this from me, but if not, your will be done. But we also see the agony of Christ in the garden, and certainly part of that agony would be him working and laboring and suffering to bring his will in his humanity into subjection to the will of the Father. And he did this, albeit without sin, in fact, Hebrews 5.8 says that Christ learned obedience from the things which he suffered. If Christ learned obedience, being perfect, being the perfect man, if Christ learned obedience by his suffering, that should let us know that part of our obedience, part of our, our what we do to work out our salvation, is going to involve the, the kind of suffering That is, that you go under and I go under when we are bringing our wills into subjection to the will of God. And we are bringing our wills into subjection to the Word of God. It says that Christ obeyed in faith, knowing that he would be resurrected. John 2 19 through 22, and Acts 2 24, and there's other places. So not only did he subject his will and suffered and, and went through that process of subjecting his will to his father, he also did that in faith, knowing that his father was going to raise him from the dead, knowing that this resurrection was going to be happening. He was motivated by the joy in his relationship with his father Hebrews 12, two says, we are to look to him as our example since he has gone before us. It says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So that should give us another insight in what obedience should be. It's, it's something that is learned through suffering. It's something that is exercised in faith. And it should be a joyful process, even though it's difficult. verses 9 through 11, we see that Christ is rewarded for his obedience. God exalts Christ and gives him a name above all others. Have you ever asked yourself, what is that name? Is it Jesus? Or is that name really a title? Is that name the name of God, Yahweh? There's lots of different ideas on this. This is something to dig into and think about later. I personally think that it was a title because at the end he says every knee will bow to Christ, to, to, to Christ Jesus, the Lord. He gave him a title which was above everything else that at the, the feet of Jesus every tongue would confess and every knee would bow that he was the supreme, ultimate ruler of all things. So Jesus exercises universal lordship Every knee will bow in heaven and under the earth, on the earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And some people have said, quite aptly so, you can bow the knee now or you can bow it later. The glory of the Father is is on display. So obedience, faithful obedience that is wrought in the crucible of suffering, that is done in the context of joy with a joyful attitude, brings glory to the Father, brings glory to God. Resurrection and our exaltation are the rewards that Christ received for his obedience. Christ was obedient, he was rewarded. Therefore, when we follow his example and we're obedient, in the same manner that he was, we're rewarded too. What are those rewards? Well, certainly the the Christ-likeness is a reward, isn't it? We are conformed continually and progressively into the image of Christ. That's a reward in this life, isn't it? And we also have the reward of the resurrection out in front of us because Christ has gone before us and has secured the fact that we will be resurrected and we will be with him yet without the sin nature. We will be made new, if you will. That, that is a glorious hope that is out in front of us. So we should learn obedience, follow in faith, and joy, joyfully submit our will to God's. Christian obedience proclaims the gospel that we are saved and an important point is that Christian obedience is an act of faith and followership, not law keeping. Philippians chapter three, verse nine. If you want to go over there, and I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna jump right in. I'm gonna parachute right in because I can't, have, I don't have time to pick up the context the whole way. Um, end of verse eight. Paul is just basically saying, I just said I'm not going to do the context, but you have to have it. You, can't, you just can't, you can't, uh, you can't move past it. Paul has just said, I have humbled myself to the point where I consider everything in this world, everything that could possibly give me meaning, I consider them a cow pie in the middle of the pasture. So that I may gain Christ and be found in him slow down and think about this, not having a righteousness of my own, which is derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So Paul is saying very clearly that law-keeping, obedience, for the purpose of keeping the rules, establishes a righteousness that's apart from Christ. And that type of obedience ends up in bondage. So he's saying the obedience that the Christian has very clearly is an obedience in the faithful activity of Christ as we follow that and try to work that out as God works it in. And it's not due to law-keeping. It's nothing we can do. That um, speaks to the idea of legalism, really. Um, There is nothing that we can do. Our justification, if you will, our salvation in Christ, the work of Christ, is complete. And there is nothing else that can be done to gain further acceptance. There is nothing that can be done. We are fully and perfectly established in Christ. We have Christ's righteousness. We stand firm. Nobody can pluck us out of his hand. So we rest in our justification. We have faith in the work of Christ on our behalf that we stand righteous. So we want that righteousness because that can't be taken away. The righteousness that's established through law keeping, obedience, the obedience of law keeping, brings us back into bondage. As Pastor Scott said um, a week or so ago, he said that when we are involved in law-keeping, because we come back to a form of our righteousness and we can never be perfect, what we end up doing is changing the law so that we can feel like we're righteous. And when we change the law, we distort our view of God. If we change the law and our righteousness and we distort the view of God, we also distort the presentation of the gospel in our lives. You see how serious that is. So we need to have this obedience that comes by faith, Christ-like faith and followership. Motivated obedience. When our obedience is follow, uh, is motivated by faith in Christ, it leads to knowing Christ. Knowing the power of his resurrection, knowing the fellowship of his sufferings, leads to being conformed to his death and to a future resurrection from the dead. Verses 9 through 11 of chapter 2 tell us that. It also results in keeping his commands because we are increasingly being conformed to Christ's image, and because Christ fully and completely kept the commands of God, we begin to keep them. In our lives practically, in a practical day-to-day sense. Our desire becomes God's desire, and our desire is to please him because of what Christ has done on our behalf, and we are following, we are suffering, we are submitting our wills to him, we are exercising our faith and joy in our obedience to conform ourselves to the image of Christ, to conform ourselves to the words of God. And that brings great joy to life. It brings freedom. Law-keeping only ever brings bondage. The freedom of our lives in Christ is based on faith. Christian obedience, as I said, is a learned response. Next point. And as Pastor Scott says, I'm going to speed it up. (laughs) You're at work in you, and you're not alone. Verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Um, I put in that word own because many translations put that in there to identify the fact that this salvation is yours. You are in possession of the salvation. You're in possession of uh, justification. And now it's being worked out in in, in real time in life through your sanctification. We call that progressive sanctification, if you will. Um, We have that idea out there that I have been saved, I'm being saved, and I will be saved. Justification, sanctification, future glorification. God will consummate these things. He's begun them, he will finish them. The idea of working out here is a different word than, or or work. It's actually the, the word that is translated work is actually brought together as work out. It is different than the word that is used for God. God's work. The the word is katergazomai. Say that ten times fast. The idea there is that you're bringing something about or bringing something to pass or you're producing something. Um, The idea behind this word is it's a present action. So the idea is that you should continue. You should be constantly at this work of working out your salvation. And the, whereas with God, the the the, the, the working was very, it was active, in this passage, the, the working, the work out, is, is what we call in the middle voice, which means that you participate in the work, but you're not alone in the work. Doesn't that make you feel good? We've kind of already established that, haven't we? That God's at work in you. You're at work in you. There's some coming together. God is is the primary cause for sure, because he is divinely and sovereignly active in his people. However, we are at work participating in the very work of God. John Piper says it this way. He says, we are acting the miracle that God is at work in us. We are acting the miracle of our salvation. It's founded and, and, and motivated by our justification. It's also motivated by what is in front of us, the future glory, the resurrection, the reward for running the race. And so we expend effort. Why? Because we want to please God. We want to please Christ. We, want, we desire it because God is desiring it in us. Romans 7, and Paul's uh, epic struggle with doing the right thing and and doing the wrong thing and never seeming to get it straight. This word is used a lot in that context. I'm not going to belabor the verses. Uh, One verse that I think really brings it out, um, the idea behind this verse is 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. It says that godly sorrow produces repentance and earnestness. But worldly sorrow produces death. The idea of that word, work out in our context as the word produces here, and so godly sorrow inside of our hearts that God brings there when we transgress his law, it brings to fruition, if you will, repentance and and, and a diligence, you know, that was in response to his letter. There's also an illustration I borrowed and kind of tweaked from uh, John MacArthur, which I thought was great. And it's an illustration from contemporary Greek usage of this word. And it's the idea of a mine. You said a mine, the word katergasomai, to bring forth, to bring out, to reveal, if you will, is the idea of digging in a mine. The stuff's down in there, you just got to bring it out. I like to think of it in the terms of our Christian life is that maybe it's a diamond mine precious jewels. I mean, we're talk, we talk about that in, uh, in Corinthians, right? You know, at the end of it, when you go to, before God, you know, um, we're going to hopefully have some precious jewels in the things that we've accomplished and done in the name of Christ, by Christ's power and his strength. So if you have a diamond mine, and you, this idea of bringing the diamonds out of the mine, it doesn't create the diamonds. The mine doesn't create the diamonds, it just holds them. And the object, uh, the objective of the miner, the one who is doing the effort, is to just bring forth what's already in there. Isn't that cool? To think of your life and as my life, that God has deposited these riches, these diamonds, these jewels, these precious things into earthen vessels that he then takes good pleasure in to bring us along so that these diamonds can be brought out. For his glory. He takes great joy in that. You know, if that doesn't make us, you know, want to exercise and, and, and work and do the work of bringing these diamonds out of the mine, you don't create the diamonds. You don't, you don't have to create your righteousness. You just have to bring it out. Mining, however, is not an easy prospect. There can be suffering. and There can be joy in the process as you uncover. But it can be laborious too, can't it? Okay? So I think it was a great example. So our sanctification, if you will, the working out of our salvation, our sanctification, our increasing progressive Christ-likeness is not created by our efforts. It's brought forth from the salvation or the justification that we already have. Praise God for that. Paul says in later on in the letter chapter 3 verses 15 and 16 that those who are perfect or justified should keep living by that same standard. In other words, you've been saved. This is the foundation that we have in Christ that's irrevocable. Those who have been saved and have been justified should continue living according to that standard, and not move away from it. Don't get in your easy chair. Let go, let God. Don't get on the treadmill of performance thinking you can, you can gain some acceptance from God, because you can't. You're just going to be brought into bondage. Don't jump into, those, into one of those situations. The promise of future reward also motivates us. Paul says that his motivation... is tied to the resurrection, to the future glory, verse chapter 3, verse 11. And so he presses on toward that future reality with great effort. He says that twice in verses 12 and 14 of chapter 3. And I believe that J.I. Packer had, a, had a, a discipline in his life where he would meditate and consider the future glories of heaven. When's the last time, you know, maybe you've done it? I don't do that a whole lot. Contemplate the future glories of heaven. But Paul said it's motivation. A man of God who just recently passed, who was used by God mightily, said that that was part of what he did. And we come down to the idea that we need to be reminding ourselves of these things, don't we? because we're leaky. That's what we're doing here right now. I'm not telling you anything new. It's all been in front of you. You may have heard it numerous and multiple times over the years, but we forget, and we need to be reminded. That's why Paul says in his letters to Timothy, some of the last letters he wrote, keep reminding the people of these things, because we need to be reminded. We gravitate toward the easy chair, And we gravitate toward the treadmill. And I'll tell you what, Christians that have been on the treadmill from the outside, they can look pretty ripped. They can look pretty buff. But I guarantee you that on the inside, they're dead man's bones. If somebody is on the treadmill for the purpose of gaining acceptance before God, they're whitewashed tombs on the inside. Paul says that we should um, work out our salvation. We should work out becoming like Christ with an attitude of fear and trembling. This is a disposition of the believer who is working out their salvation, an attitude, if you will. We're not to be afraid of God because God has brought us near, called us friends, adopted us into his family, told us that he is now our daddy. We cry out, Abba, Father. He has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places so we are not to be afraid of our God because he is the one who loves us more than we actually love ourselves. And that's why he's continually at work in us, changing us into the image of Christ because the best thing for us is to be like Christ. So the idea here is a reverence, an awe at the fact that the God of the universe is working in me to accomplish his good purpose, to bring himself glory, to bring himself joy. And the idea of trembling is to quiver or shake. uh, These are not hard words. But we need to understand that this is an attitude of seriousness, if you will, when you come before the word of God. Seriousness when you consider the temptations and the difficulties in your life that might pull you away. Serious about bringing things into your heart or mind that you know don't please Christ. This should, in a sense, the attitude of fear and trembling should bring uh, a level of awareness in our lives of our present activity toward godliness. Isaiah sixty six two says, But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. God wants us to take his word seriously. And there can be times, I think, when we are exposed for a lifetime maybe to the Bible, to preaching, to teaching, that somehow the word of God can lose its luster. Maybe we become a little hardened. God brings us back, praise the Lord. But especially in a place where there's Good solid teaching. You know, there's a tendency to look at your phone, be distracted. You know, here you're in the presence of the Word of God. That's what we've come together for. I'm not important. The Word of God is important. You know, it's not the teachers, it's not anything. It's just being brought out there. And it's being being laid out hopefully as a feast. I would say here at Riverbend we feast on the Word of God. Well, there can be apathy there. You get it so much, all of a sudden now, you know. Instead of uh, working out on your own, you come here and think we're working out for you. I think the teachers and the preachers are working out for you. And that's not the Christian life. Sure, we come together collectively to witness to the love and the joy and the acceptance and the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ as a body, but everybody needs to be active. That's why God gifts by his spirit individual members of the body so that the body can grow in likeness to Christ and can grow in unity and we can be a witness so it's the individual and it's the collective the collection that god is concerned with and we have blind spots sometimes apathy can turn you know can come an apathy and maybe some hardness can show up in our lives and we don't even know it's there because our hearts are deceitful. And they fool us. They fool us into thinking maybe we're doing what we should be doing. Hopefully we just don't find another checkbox you know, to, to check off the list. Hopefully we look to Christ. We begin to preach the gospel to ourselves. And that's what I would like to leave us with tonight is no matter where you are at as a believer, no matter where you are at in your working out your salvation, I would like to leave you with a couple of things. God is at work in you. You're not alone. He will accomplish his purposes in you. The proper response of the believer is to be diligent and active and Working hard to obtain that Christ likeness, to lay hold of that which has been laid I've been laid a hold of for. And I believe a big way to do that is to preach the gospel to ourselves, to remind ourselves daily that we are justified in Christ and that there's nothing we can add to that, that there's a future glory that's coming. I'll be resurrected I'll be with Christ forever in eternity and the the sinful struggle the struggle with my sin the struggle of this working out of this life will be stripped away it's temporary it's not going to last forever so I would encourage you to to work at, work it out work hard if you if you need to be discipled find somebody If you haven't been discipled in your your 30s, like I was in my 30s before I really was discipled, find somebody with gray hair in the church and say, will you just meet with me? Will you talk to me about salvation? Will you talk to me about the things of God and grow in Christ? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you for loving us more than we love ourselves. Thank you that... Christ has accomplished everything we need for life and godliness. You have done it all. And we can't add to that. We can't take away from it. Um, Lord, you're asking us to walk in obedience and, and, and suffer the pains of, uh, that, that come with conforming our will to your will, God, and there is joy in that because we know the joy that our Savior had. We know the joy, the, the suffering that he went through and his example. And uh, Lord, that is possible. And so I thank you that uh, we can come to your word. I thank you that your word is clear. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would drive home these truths to us. And Lord, if there's anyone here, Lord, who has not come to a saving relationship by faith with Christ, I pray that they would. Today would be the day that they would repent, turn from their sins, and follow Christ in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.